Do people truly understand what robotic-assisted surgery entails? Or is it sometimes mistaken for a more futuristic practice than it really is? Robotics is a good name and it's a bad name for robotic surgery. It's a good name because it's exciting and it sort of describes what we're using. But on the other hand, it kind of implies automation, a level of difference in the surgery that wasn't there before. And in fact, for colorectal surgery, really, it's a development of technology which allows you to be more sophisticated in the delivery of minimal access surgery. So it's a natural continuum. It is understood that robotics isn't just an advancement in the act of surgery and that it actually has the potential for augmenting training, helping surgeons to understand where and how they can improve, thanks to the many data points that can be gathered. One of the great step-ups that robotics gives us over laparoscopic colorectal surgery is this ability to introduce a whole load of metrics uh, and to actually see what the KPI should be and what our quality assurance could be, all of which will drive up performance. And so I think that doing that through a registry and understanding what our parameters are for high performance is something that we can get much more of that from robotics than we can from laparoscopic. This is Surgical RoboTalks, brought to you by CMR Surgical and the Association of Surgeons in Training your source for all the latest in robotic-assisted surgery and education. Each episode, we speak with surgeons and leading figures in medicine to help clinicians make sense of the developments, challenges and opportunities in robotic-assisted surgery. I'm your host, Jessica Butterworth, and my co-host today is Christina Fleming. Hi, I'm Christina Fleming. I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon at University Hospital Limerick in Ireland. I'm a past a European Society of Coloproctology Robotic Surgery Fellow and past Vice President of the Association of Surgeons in Training. In our final episode, we'll be finding out about the role robotics is playing in colorectal surgery with the help of consultant colorectal surgeon and President-elect of the Association of Coloproctology of Great Britain and Ireland, Jared Talkington. We'll find out how colorectal surgery has changed since the introduction of robotics and learn how the success of robotic-assisted surgery could be assessed and monitored beyond randomised trials. Plus, Jared shares his thoughts on how best to integrate robotics within colorectal medicine, and he explains what he thinks could be the next evolution of robotic-assisted surgery. Robotics might be a hot topic in surgery now, but long before joysticks and 3D technology were being used to operate on patients, there was another surgical method exciting surgeons and sparking debate, laparoscopy. But since it was first introduced in the UK in the late 80s, laparoscopic surgery has made its way into the mainstream, and the method has become a staple in surgical units throughout the country. So how did this surgical technique go from experimental practice to being performed millions of times per year? Laparoscopic surgery really started in the UK probably in the late 80s when I was a medical student and obviously started with cholecystectomy and there was lots and lots of interest in it at that time, quite a lot of research and it was clear that the advantage was going to be due to the, the small incisions and it was minimal access surgery. But it was clear that if you could decrease the trauma of getting into the abdomen to do an operation. And, and if you could do it just as well, patients would recover quicker. And so it then started to be 
really interesting to to colorectal surgeons. And it started kind of in the mid-90s. People were doing laparoscopic colorectal surgery for, for cancer. And people started to be very cautious and it was disrupting the status quo. And for a while, it became a bit of a bad boy of surgery, if you like. And that was kind of how it went through the 90s with lots of detractors and lots of enthusiasts, but often quite quiet enthusiasts. As we came into sort of the 2000s, people started to recognise that all those advantages that we were seeing in cholecystectomy uh, could be applied to colorectal surgery. And I remember, I remember a couple of things quite clearly. One was Neil Mortensen, who is now the president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England and Wales, him standing up at an ACP meeting and actually being one of the first sort of big cheeses, Beanox, as my kids call them, big names on campus. He was one of the first people that actually stood up in front of all the others and said, we need to embrace this. And then we had the NICE guidelines, one which was, I think, about 2000, which wasn't very supportive. And then the big one, which was 2006, which basically said that laparoscopic colorectal surgery and it was a perfectly reasonable alternative to open surgery if the patient was suitable and crucially people uh, were well and appropriately trained. So it sounds like there was quite a lot of controversy I guess over laparoscopic surgery in the 90s and then we've seen this massive improvement particularly when it comes to training today. So how did that change in training come about? Obviously, you mentioned the NICE guidelines came in, but did you see an impact on the way people approached it, I guess, to get better outcomes? Or how did they sort of make that transition? The introduction of laparoscopic surgery absolutely changed training. There's no question about it in my mind. It was laparoscopic surgery that changed the way we think about and the way that we deliver surgical training now. And that was because there was a lot of people just having a go. And they thought because... They could do a, an open cholecystectomy in 15, 20 minutes that they would be like a duck to water to do laparoscopic surgery. But without really appreciating that you were bringing in the performance of complex three-dimensional tasks using only a 2D screen. And don't forget, we didn't have HD and we didn't have uh, 3D and we didn't have 5K and all these things. So... There was this interpretation of a 2D image to perform a complex 3D task whilst using long instruments with limited range of movement. And even though everybody knew how to do the operation, these factors really made it complicated, a bit like doing a hurdling race, but you know, having to do it three-legged. So there were a couple of high-profile problems uh, and people recognised that, that if this was going to succeed, that there needed to be dedicated training. And places like the College of Surgeons, places like the Centre in Guildford, the YMAT in Cardiff, these were the first wave of training centres that were set up deliberately to have laboratory training of these surgical skills. And, and a lot of these other things in terms of surgical training fell out of it to where we are now today, which, you know, which is mostly a competence-based progression uh, and the need to do some of these tasks. Around that time, the ATLS was starting as well. This idea of moulage and simulation was all coming on stream. So I just think to pick up on something there with regards to implementation, and I guess implementation of laparoscopic colorectal surgery is really what has helped us maybe better implement robotic surgery. 
And from the point of view of training, from the point of view of having clear quality assurance measures in our hospitals as well. But I guess fundamentally, the question always comes back to, well, why should we do robotic colorectal surgery if we can get the benefits of minimally invasive surgery from laparoscopic surgery? So I guess from your point of view, Jared, where would you feel that the real benefits lie with robotics and its introduction in colorectal surgery? Well, I think robotics is a good name and it's a bad name for robotic surgery. It's a good name because it's um, exciting and it sort of describes what we're using. But on the other hand, it's a bad name because it it kind of implies automation. It kind of implies a level of difference in the surgery that wasn't there before. And in fact, for colorectal surgery, really, it's, it's, it's a development of technology which allows you to be more sophisticated in the delivery of minimal access surgery. So it's a natural continuum. And I think that you can divide robotic surgery into two groups. You can divide it into the group where you have conditions who have struggled to implement minimal access surgery. And so prostatectomy would be one of those. Or you can have a group where it's just a natural continuum in terms of a technology advance. So laparoscopic colorectal being a good example of that. And so you're bringing through robotics a greater degree of dexterity, better vision to some conditions which found it really difficult to do that with conventional laparoscopy. Another good example of that would be ENT type surgery and some elements of thoracics as well. And also through robotics with the other group you are bringing a great level of sophistication to how you do the surgery. So I don't think colorectal is a massive jump. I just think in the same way as we move from standard definition, literally on televisions that were, you know, 12 inches to high definition 5K, 35, 40 inch screens, you know, bringing that level of a sophistication to with 3D imaging and our dexterity with robotic instruments it's been a natural evolution I think uh, in colorectal surgery. So I think I'd really agree with that as well and I think that um, what we forget is that robotic surgery is just on the spectrum of surgery with maybe open surgery being like surgery 1.0, laparoscopic being 2.0, now we're into robotics 3.0 and looking to I guess a future of more maybe technology-enhanced digital surgery from the point of view of improving how we can deliver precision surgery. But one question, I guess, that would often come up is how do you relate that to patients when they hear all of these terms, robotics, technology, and explain that it's, you know, this is just part of the natural progression rather than something very new and different? The reality of for most patients, I think, is that, you know, most of them want to know that they're going to have a successful operation to treat their colorectal cancer and they don't want to have a bag. And the sort of the use of minimal access surgery and robotics in some ways can sometimes be of much more interest to the surgeon and the healthcare system than it is actually to the patient. And, you know, if you said to the patient, look, we can absolutely 100% guarantee you uh, the two things that you want the most, but you're going to be in hostel for a month, a lot of them would take that. So 
it's a really complicated thing and there's a big difference between patients and the public there's a big difference between what surgeons think what patients think and there's also a big difference between what we think patients want to know and what they actually want to know so i think that um surgery is a funny thing isn't it finding the evidence for a lot of things we do in surgery is very very difficult but a lot of stuff we kind of we know and we feel is the right thing to do and we know that if we can do things something more precisely it's probably going to lead to less blood loss it's going to lead to tidier neater margins and will at some point translate uh, into better outcomes although that's quite hard to prove because actually we're doing laparoscopic colorectal quite well most people and so it's a small gain and I think patients get the idea of robotics. Patients get the idea of surgery, actually, full stop. How many times, Christina, people said to you, I just want it out? You know, and it, it's a quite a common thing you hear in outpatients, isn't it? And if, you, if you're confident using the equipment that you have to do something precisely and carefully without complications, then actually patients will, will feed off that confidence and you know, hopefully it'll be a win-win for everybody. So, Jared, can you remember sort of where you were or what you were doing the first time you heard about robotics, particularly in soft tissue um, surgery? Because I can imagine the evidence wasn't there, which could be a barrier to adoption. So do you remember any blockers or any hurdles and what the initial feeling was towards robotics, particularly after that potentially controversial introduction um, in laparoscopic surgery that you mentioned? I did my research at uh, St Mary's with Aradazi and we were doing lots of stuff on simulation and virtual reality and there's a guy called Satava in the States who had been and I think I'm right in saying this is that a lot of the early development in the States came from a warfare based approach to using robotics in the theatre of war and he was very key and uh, I remember hearing about it and, and thinking about it and thinking it was fairly space age and it was space age because there was another surgeon from Canada who was also involved with NASA and about the ability to do robotic surgery in space and so it was very kind of um, Star Trek-esque at that time and then when people started to do it it was difficult because you had people who were very very good at laparoscopic surgery taking on robotics and in some ways the parallel between very, very good open surgery surgeons not having much time for laparoscopy was sort of seen a little bit. Very good laparoscopic surgeons not having much time for robotics. So it, it kind of, it, it took a while, I think, to get embedded. And then a few people walked away from it because, you know, certainly at that time, the early systems had advantages and disadvantages. So when would that have been? Late 90s, probably, that I first kind of saw it was coming. And since the late 90s, robotic-assisted surgery has exploded in popularity. According to a post from August 2023 in the Strategic Market Research blog, the percentage of general surgery procedures using robotic-assisted surgery rose from 1.8% to 17% from 2012 to 2022. They also predicted an annual growth rate of around 15. But even though the popularity of robotics has increased, whether or not the technique carries significant benefits over laparoscopic surgery to justify the greater investment is still a debate. 
So this leaves some asking, are more randomised trials needed to verify the success rates and benefits of robotics? The question of what evidence we need is a, is a really interesting one. And of course, we put the randomised controlled trial at the top of the kind of tree in terms of what we need in order to justify something. But randomised controlled trials are, are really expensive. They take an awful long time. They're difficult to recruit to. And often by the time they're finished, the whole world has moved on a bit. And I think in terms of surgical techniques and procedures, more importantly than randomised trials are, are registries and the ability to see trends, the ability to know when uh, innovations take place and move, move forward allows us to evaluate a procedure better. I think sometimes we, we ask the wrong questions in randomised controlled trials and, and we get really surprised when we don't get a, a definitive answer. I mean, if you look at the early trials of laparoscopic colorectal, I mean, some of those will never be repeated because the world has moved on. So I think that uh, randomised controlled trials have their place. I think the questions need to be really sharp and I think you need to be really confident and you can re recruit to them quickly. Otherwise, they turn out to be very long, very expensive and not necessarily give you an answer. And I, and I really favour the idea of, of registries in terms of trying to understand how things are taken forward. And the other thing is, if you, if you are going to do trials, making sure you understand what the question is. So really important, you know, if you bring a robot into a unit and you bring a, a young, dynamic group of surgeons in, your outcomes are going to change for a million reasons, not just because of the robot. They're going to change because you're going to have a fresh approach to debate in an MDT. You're going to actually recruit a, a specialist nurse. And those things actually may be driven by everybody circling around introduction of robotic surgery and being enthused again. And how do you measure that in a randomised controlled trial? You just can't. But you can see over time how a department changes. And it's really just one piece of equipment that would change things. About It's a whole culture. I think that's really interesting and I actually completely agree with you on that point as well and I do think the benefit of registries allows us to have a more granular look at the data as well in a more expansive way and patient specific way in terms of translating that to real life as well which I think is important. I guess as a colorectal surgery community we haven't really approached robotic surgery from the point of view of registries yet. Do you think that's something that we should start thinking about or how we should possibly deliver that? I think it'd be really interesting. I think it's really important because the parallel is what's happened in colonoscopy. Colonoscopy's undergone a revolution in terms of the standard to which it's being performed now. Now that has coincided with quite a lot of new technology that's come in. A lot of that's been due to quality assurance and colonoscopy as a procedure is a lot easier to standardise than a rectal cancer operation, for example. But once you start to get KPIs of sequel completion, of adenoma detection rate, of time to withdrawal, of interval cancers, as you do with colonoscopy, you know, you absolutely drive up uh, the standard across the board. And I think that robotics in particular, and this is one of the great step-ups that robotics gives us over laparoscopic colorectal surgery, is this ability to introduce a whole load of metrics and to actually see 
what the KPI should be and what our quality assurance could be, all of which will drive up performance. And so I think that, you know, doing that through a registry and understanding what our parameters are for high performance is something that we can we can get much more of that from robotics than we can from laparoscopic. Okay, so you might not be aware, but in our last episode of the podcast with Justin Collins, we actually had a similar discussion around registries and he created quite an interesting anecdote of a guy called Ernst Codman who suggested the use of registries as far back as I think it was 1914. However, he was ultimately struck off for this. So you're both seeming to talk about registries in a much more positive way, which is great. And at CMR, it's something that we're really passionate about and in fact actually encouraged um, the use of our registry from the beginning of the first sale of Versius. So do you think your views are represented or reflected in the surgical community of today? I guess it's um, there's two sides to the coin. So firstly, I think where the utility of registries is probably lies in those that are mandatory. Because, you know, if you're selectively selecting cases that you include in a registry, then you're probably not getting the full picture. And then when something becomes mandatory, there's a lot of complexities with regards to implementation of that kind of system. I don't think that's a specific problem with robotics. I think it's a problem that's recognised with registries in general. But I think, you know, we have to be honest that the greatest benefit with regards to having a registry for robotic surgery is that it is something that we would do mandatory and we would include all cases in. But implementing that in a unit and across the network and regionally and nationally would be a very complex thing to do, I would understand. But had been done for other conditions before. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the issue. I would make it mandatory. And I think that it can be done. So within Wales, we have said that um, data entry into the registry is, is mandatory. In order to be part of the programme, you know, each unit will need to enter its data. And that will be supported rather than policed. <laughs> it's, it's an upfront requirement of being part of the programme is that people will enter their data. And, and I think that will allow a couple of things. It will allow everyone who is a good surgeon, everyone who's an average surgeon to get better. It will allow people who actually find it difficult to gracefully withdraw. It will allow people to become high volume surgeons and high volume centers. And, and I think that's really important. And, and we've seen that with colonoscopy, that where there's a higher level of scrutiny, some people don't want that. And so they gracefully withdraw from doing screening colonoscopy, for example. I think it is possible. I think it has to be mandatory in order to get the full value out of it. And if you look at when we've had registries that are not mandatory, they very rarely get completed. We know we've struggled a bit with IBD for that, pouch registries and things like this. You know, we know we're missing huge amounts of data and huge numbers of cases. So I don't see any reason if it's up front and implementation requires a sign-up that it can't be done. Registries are a great resource for pooling together data from numerous centres to verify the efficacy of robotic-assisted surgery. But these insights aren't just useful on a macro scale. Robotic units are incredibly effective at capturing enormous amounts of data allowing surgeons to easily analyse their individual performance in any given operation. And this doesn't just benefit qualified robotic surgeons. 
In fact, anyone using robotic systems can gain a detailed look at their performance to benchmark their progress and identify areas for improvement. So with robotics making for such great educational tools for surgical trainees, how should they be incorporated into surgical training? So again, taking the sort of parallel back to laparoscopic colorectal surgery, there was huge numbers of courses and there was lots of support for getting people on board with laparoscopic colorectal surgery. But the real uplift in the curve, if you like, in terms of uplift, came when we started to train trainees, in my opinion. And treading very carefully, because I don't want to upset my peer group, but actually actually training people in their mid and late 50s is important in a way because you need senior consultants within a department to be supportive of others. But in reality, if you if you train someone that's you know, 58, 59, 60, you're only going to get five or six years out of them. They will have always been better at laparoscopic. And, you know, the key is to me is to introduce things really early. There's no reason why medical students can't learn to do robotics. And, you know, and if we have a general surgical training scheme in Britain and Ireland that absolutely integrates robotics into surgical training early doors, you want people appointed as consultants who can do robotic surgery as opposed to learning it as a post-appointment type skill. It's very difficult then to find the time to pick up new things. So for me, the key is to have um, some form of structured robotic training integrated into surgical training. You know, why shouldn't we have a basic robotics course like a basic surgical skills course? You know, and if you look at a basic surgical skills course now, it has laparoscopic skills in it including knot tying and things like that. Why shouldn't we that be robotics? I'm sure that's the direction of travel. And then we have people who are trained uh, when they become consultants and hit the floor running. That's going to be the key to massive integration in a, in a first world country anyway. And what do you think about all the different robots coming to the market as a surgical trainee? So obviously, even the hand controllers are very different. And I guess the setup between a modular design and the robots on a boom is also very different. So do you think a surgical trainee should be trained in each or sort of every single robot? Or do you see a transference of skills across the systems coming? You know, the future is multi-platform. And in exactly the same way that there are 40 different types of laparoscopic needle holder, I think understanding the principles and mechanisms of, of robotic surgery will allow uh, trainees and surgeons to be appointed anywhere. I think that sometimes that it's a bit of a tired analogy comparing surgery to the airline industry. But if you're a pilot, you do conversion courses to go from a 737 to a 777 and you maintain your skills. You still understand all the fundamentals of, of flying. And it's really important that we make sure people can do the operation, they understand the pathology, they understand the importance of, of margins, of anatomy, uh, and the robotic platforms that become really successful will be easy to pick up, will be easier to transfer from one to another, will be adaptable to multi-specialty, and will be continually evolving as well. So, you know, the, the whole area has been dominated by essentially one company, but multiple companies coming through now and and the profession has to adapt to that. I think it's naive if people think there's only going to be one robot 
There's going to be multiple platforms, which is really good because it will push development of technology to another level and systems that can integrate fluorescence and energy devices and multi-quadrant working and adaptability and being able to move from one theatre to another and another and be easy to convert from one system to another. They will emerge as the winners, but the world is now multi-platform in terms of robotics, which I think is a good thing. I might just pull back on one point that you made about transitioning from an era where robotic surgery really was being introduced in consultant practice to now introducing robotic surgery to trainees so that trainees are essentially starting their consultant practice as fully competent robotic surgeons. And I think that's a transition that I've lived through since 2016 to now. And what I have noticed is that it has been very rapid, the culture around change and the robot being maybe a complex concept to introduce to a surgical theatre environment, to more embracing multi-platform introduction in a single department is something that's starting to become almost like a norm as opposed to an exception. And I, I think from the point of view of how to further expand robotic surgery as the norm really does lie in having day one consultants who are fully qualified. So that brings us back to the point, I guess, of how do we introduce robotic surgery in parallel to the current training systems? And with implementing the national system in Wales, how have you found strategies to address this or implement this in a more seamless way? Yeah, so how do you introduce a new technique or a new procedure without impacting on everyone else's training, for example. My personal view, and, you know, I've done a lot of laparoscopic colorectal surgery and I haven't done a lot of robotics in comparison. I would say even as a middle-aged, long-in-the-tooth surgeon, the transition has actually been very, very straightforward. I think that in colorectal surgery, the jump in terms of complexity of delivering the actual operation is not massive going from laparoscopic to robotic i think for urology it was massive they were going from open prostatectomy to to robotics so that was a very very big jump so i don't perceive that it's going to delay things for long so we started in summer last year we've had our registrars now go on first assist courses We've been doubling up consultant-wise. We've still had plenty of conventional surgery within the department because the volume is so big. I don't believe that actually the setup time is in any way a problem. And I don't think the procedure time is particularly a problem, certainly any anymore. But I think you can mitigate against that and keep people involved. And so, yeah, it's a concern, but people were concerned when people started doing laparoscopic cholecystectomy. How are people going to do open cholecystectomy? You know, and actually it was absolutely fine. And um, so we're in a bit of a transition period. But as I think that those robotic skills get pushed back into surgical training, I think it's going to be a non-issue. You know, you must find now where you are in that first third of your consultant career that you need supportive older surgeons who are not going to say oh robotics why on earth did you start doing that and the ideal for you is to 
have a new colleague who's appointed who can already do it, not someone you're going to have to train to do it. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. So the department that I work in at the moment, you know, I've taken up a replacement post for somebody who retired and they would have introduced robotic surgery about six years ago. And he would have been very much coming to the, the winter time of, of his career. So he was very supportive of his other colleagues embracing robotic surgery as they were probably in the first 10 to 15 years, but didn't feel that it was for him at that stage, but facilitated, I guess, everybody else embracing it. And then ensuring that new appointments coming in are also well competent. And what that has really led to is a very robust training programme with um, trainees getting, due to the high volume of cases and the, I guess, high volume of experience now within the department, that all of the senior trainees would get consult time. And I think that has been a very positive transition as well. So that, you know, when they do come to fellowship stage, that um, they're already well on their way. The other thing that will drive the implementation of robotics is trainees and patients. And actually, it's going to be very difficult to be a highfalutin, high-training, well-thought-of colorectal unit without robotics in the future, because that's what trainees are going to want. And, and I also think that we must be cognizant of what happened with prostatectomy, in that even now, today, there are at least two other treatments that are just as good as prostatectomy that don't involve surgery. And most men chose those options before the introduction of robotic prostatectomy. And it kind of led to an explosion of people wanting surgery. And so patients were driving it. And I think trainees will drive it because that's what they will want for training. And so it's possible to have a very cold appraisal of evidence and say, oh, there's not enough evidence. But the train has left the station and I don't think there's any turning back now. I think that the, the one thing that robotic companies and industry in general have got to be aware of is the sustainability agenda. Will we ever be able to justify doing very simple laparoscopic surgery with robotics? You know, that's going to be about sustainability and demonstrating that what we're doing is not just better for the patient, but better for the system and better for the environment and, and everything else. So, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff to work on there. As the general public's awareness of robotic-assisted surgery continues to grow, so will the pressure on the NHS Trust to provide it. And this increased demand for robotics isn't just coming from patients, but surgical trainees too. Therefore, if trusts want to remain in the esteem of the public and our country's future consultants, they'll need to embrace and invest in robotics. And given that Jared has been following and engaging with robotics since it first appeared on the medical scene over 30 years ago, how does he think the technology and its adoption will continue to evolve over the next five years? Five years goes really quickly. That's the trouble. You blink and it's five years has gone. And the health service is very slow to do anything. And I'm sure that's the same in Ireland as it is in the, in the UK. Change is very difficult. But if you were to say 10 years, 10 years, in theory, everything that we do laparoscopically will be done robotically. That is the logical, most obvious uh, change. Why would we do something with straight instruments 
when we can do that with 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 instruments that give us a, a huge amount more of dexterity. Whether or not we get to that point will be about cost and will be about sustainability. Those are the two big things. I have no doubt that the outcomes will be better or the same. And so why wouldn't we use uh, more sophisticated technology to do it if it was available? So, yeah, five years, it's a bit tricky, but 10 years, I, I see no reason why that won't be the case, that every hospital that's doing laparoscopic surgery will be doing robotic surgery. And I think maybe a point to just add to that as well, something that I'm really excited about is how we're going to apply technology, artificial intelligence with robotics to get better data and data on how we perform surgery, but maybe data that we can use to implement safer surgery. And I think there's some very exciting things on the horizon with regards to that as well. And I think from the point of view of the technological advantage that robotics offers us over laparoscopy, that's really going to be a game changer when we get to that point. And hopefully that's in the next 10 years as well. Yeah, I think that that's really, really exciting, isn't it? The idea that, you know, the incorporation of fluorescence, why shouldn't, even when you're doing a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, a little beeper going off if you're going a little bit too close to the common bile duct, to the ureter and, you know, simple things like that. The ability to overlay imaging, introduce artificial intelligence, use fluorescence. You know, we've got self-drive cars. I think we're a long, long way away from self-drive surgery. But there's no reason that the guidance that can come with these things won't come into surgery as well. And robotics does give us that, I think. Robotics is having a significantly positive impact on colorectal surgery and surgical disciplines across the board. More dexterous models are improving access and reducing trauma, and higher fidelity imaging equipment is helping surgeons to navigate procedures with more precision. But the adoption of robotic-assisted surgery carries more benefits beyond the robotic unit themselves. Further training for theatre teams and opening the door to more debate and discussion both contribute to improving patient care and surgical outcomes too. But as we've heard throughout the series, as an evolution of laparoscopic surgery, the success of robotic-assisted surgery doesn't rely on the technology itself, but on the skill and training of the surgical teams operating them. So, for robotics to really benefit patients, training in and exposure to the technology is critical. That's it for this episode of Surgical RoboTalks. A huge thanks to Jared Talkington for joining us today. If you've enjoyed our discussion, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to our show. And that's also it for our first season. A special thank you to all our guests who joined us over the last five episodes. Surgical RoboTalks was created by CMR Surgical and the Association of Surgeons in Training and was produced by Lower Street Media. Please keep an eye on your podcast player and we'll be back soon with season two of Surgical Robo Talks.